This morning in our study of Genesis, we will be considering chapter 37. These are the words of God. Now Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers, and the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children, because he was the son of his old age. Also he made him a tunic of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and he told it to his brothers, and they hated him even more. So he said to them, Please hear this dream which I have dreamed. There we were, binding sheaves in the field. Then behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And indeed, your sheaves stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brother said to him, Shall you indeed reign over us? Or shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed still another dream. And told it to his brothers and said, Look, I have dreamed another dream. And this time the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars bowed down to me. So he told it to his father and his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? And his brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Then his brothers went to feed their father's flock in Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers feeding the flock in Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. So he said to him, Here I am. Then he said to him, Please go and see if it is well with your brothers and well with the flocks, and bring back word to me. So he sent him out of the valley of Hebron, and he went to Shechem. Now a certain man found him, And there he was, wandering in the field. And the man asked him, saying, What are you seeking? So he said, I am seeking my brothers. Please tell me where they are feeding their flocks. And the man said, They have departed from here, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. Now when they saw him afar off, even before he came near them, they conspired against him to kill him. Then they said to one another, Look, this dreamer is coming. Come, therefore, let us now kill him and cast him into some pit. And we shall say, Some wild beast has devoured him. We shall see what will become of his dreams. But Reuben heard it, and he delivered him out of their hands and said, Let us not kill him. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, but cast him into this pit which is in the wilderness, and do not lay a hand on him that he might deliver him out of their hands and bring him back to his father. So it came to pass, when Joseph had come to his brothers, that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the tunic of many colors that was on him. Then they took him and cast him into a pit. And the pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat a meal. And they lifted their eyes and looked. And there was a company of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels, bearing spices, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry them down to Egypt. So Judah said to his brothers, 
What profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother in our flesh. And his brothers listened. Then Midianite traders passed by, so the brothers pulled Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver, and they took Joseph to Egypt. Then Reuben returned to the pit, and indeed Joseph was not in the pit, and he tore his clothes, and he returned to his brothers and said, The lad is no more, and I, where shall I go? So they took Joseph's tunic, killed a kid of the goats, and dipped the tunic in the blood. Then they sent the tunic of many colors, and they brought it to their father and said, We have found this. Do you know whether it is your son's tunic or not? And he recognized it and said, It is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Without doubt, Joseph is torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his waist and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, For I shall go down into the grave to my son in mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Now the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and captain of the guard. Our God and Father, we pray by the Spirit open these great words that you brought to pass so long ago, all pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ and his life, his sufferings and the glories to follow, by which he has brought us life eternal. The Lord God, we pray, bless this word now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our text announces a major new section in the book of Genesis. The Generations of Jacob, verse 2. Now, if you remember, patriarchs' generations refer not to their ancestors, but to their children, and specifically to the Christ type God raises up among them. So if you remember with the generations of Isaac, they began with the conception of Esau and Jacob, fraternal twins, but more specifically with God's prophetic decree that Esau, the older, would serve Jacob, the younger. In other words, Jacob, the younger, would be the covenant head in Christ's child, Genesis chapter 25. And now with the sons of Jacob, it is not the eldest son, Reuben, who will be the Christ type, but the youngest son at that time, Joseph. And notice that the generations of Jacob do not begin when Joseph is conceived or born, but when God makes it clear that he is the Christ type, when he gives them his special dreams at age 17. That's when the generations of Jacob begin. And through this pattern, God keeps repeating the message that his covenant and his promises are not about normal human descent and inheritance but about sharing in the inheritance of the promised one, Jesus Christ, to whom all of these Christ types are pointing. As Paul says in Galatians 3.29, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. He adds to this in Romans 8.16 and 17, we are children of God in Christ. 
And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. It has always been from the beginning about looking away from ourselves, looking away from whatever we think is ours by right, looking wholly to Christ and looking to share in his inheritance because he's the only one in all of human history who inherits the promises of God and all the glories that God intended from the beginning in his own right. The rest of us are disqualified. To inherit, we must inherit in him. And so God keeps preaching that message over and over in every generation because that's the gospel. Now, as a matter of background, we need to recognize that the events we're reading here in chapter 37 overlap with the events that we read back in chapters 33, 34, and 35. That's where Esau reunites with Jacob, then departs. Jacob moves back into Canaan. Uh, that's where Jacob settles around the town of Salem in the territory of Shechem, the prince. It's where the um, the incident with Dinah and the and the and the murder of all the men of Salem, the pillaging of the town that occurs. It's where Joseph, I mean, Jacob leaves and is traveling. He goes back to Bethel where God first appeared to him. And then they're traveling on. And then Rachel, in giving birth to Benjamin, uh, dies along the way. And she's buried along the way. In those events is where these events in chapter 37 actually occur. Now, how do we know this? We know this because... Sarah dies in chapter 35, verses 18, 19, giving birth to Benjamin. But in chapter 37, Sarah is still alive and Benjamin is not yet born. Look at chapter 37, verse 10. When Joseph reports his second dream to his father, Jacob says, Shall your mother and I indeed come and bow down before you? You see, Rachel was still alive at that time. This explains why later on in Genesis chapter 42, when Joseph is in Egypt, he's in his late 30s. His brothers have come down to buy grain, but they don't recognize him. When his brothers mention that there is a younger brother who is with his father, Jacob, you see that's news to Joseph. That's the first time he knows that because his mother was still alive and there was no younger brother at the time that he was sold into slavery. This also explains why in chapter 48, we have Jacob relating to Joseph the details of how Rachel died and how she was buried along the road on the way to Bethlehem. Why is he relating these details? Because Joseph didn't know those details because he wasn't there because he had already been sold into slavery. Now you may wonder, well, why is God doing this? Why is he kind of unshuffling the deck? Why is he pulling some of these cards out from the middle of the deck and then moving them over here into this new section? Isn't the Bible reliable and true history? Yes, the Bible is true history. All of these are historical events that occurred the way the Bible says they did. 
But because the Bible is true history does not mean it is mere history, a mere sequencing chronologically of various things that happen. The most important thing God is trying to get through is pointing forward to the gospel by focusing on the stories of these various Christ types. And now with a new Christ type identified with Joseph at age 17, um, God needs to pull out uh, the background setting for that context for the story of Joseph and to put it in a discrete section. So it coheres and we get that story all at once. But these events actually happen back somehow, somewhere in the sequence of events of chapter 33, 34, and 35. But this is the story of the Christ type God has raised up from Jacob. That is his son, Joseph. That's why this is the generations of Jacob. And this story of Joseph as Christ type will be the capstone of the entire book of Genesis. It is 14 chapters long. It will take us all the way to the end of the book. And it is the most vivid picture of Christ and the gospel in the entire book of Genesis. So coming back to our text, we get our first real acquaintance with Joseph in verses 2 through 11. And at first blush, Joseph seems like it's easy to conclude that he is pampered, spoiled, a tattletale, and conceited, full of himself. But it's important that we remember to interpret Scripture by Scripture, rather than interpreting it by our own sentiments and stereotypes. Now, if you remember, we've already learned this lesson with Jacob and Esau. You remember the popular stereotype, the controlling stereotype, was that Jacob is a mild man. In other words, he's a sissy boy who hangs out with the women, and he's a snake. Whereas Esau, and now he's a jolly good fellow, and he's a man's man. But when we looked at Scripture more closely, we saw that Jacob was a complete man, God using the same word that is used of Noah and Job, and the same word by that Abraham is commanded to be, walk with me, be complete, be what you were created to be. That's what it says Jacob was. And he was not weak. He was a physically powerful man because we saw he removed a great stone from a well for Rachel when it normally took several men to move that stone. And so the bottom line was Jacob cared for the things of God and he sought the responsibilities that came with covenant headship. Whereas Esau lived only for the moment, cared nothing about the things of God or the responsibilities of covenant headship, which is why he is so thoroughly condemned on the pages of the New Testament. And so we've learned this lesson before. So let's make sure we look at Joseph in the light of Scripture. Well, the first statement that we have about Joseph in verse 3 is that 
Israel loved Joseph more than all his children. But then we need to note that that's immediately explained by the next phrase. What does that mean? He loved him more than all his children. What it means is Joseph was the son of Jacob's old age. You have to remember that when Joseph was born, Jacob was 91. You can see that if you compare Genesis 45 verse 6 with Genesis 47 verse 9, you will see that when Jacob goes down and visits Joseph in Egypt, he's 130 years old and Joseph is 39. You put that together, you back it up, do the math, and Jacob was 91 when Joseph is born. When they return to Canaan, Joseph is six years old. Jacob is 97. Reuben, the oldest, would have been around 20, with Simeon, Levi, Judah right behind. The youngest of Joseph's older brothers would have been 12 or maybe in the early teens. So the eldest of the boys at that time were fully capable of working as full shepherds and supervisors and superintendents. Even the youngest of the older brothers would have been old enough to work as an under-shepherd. But Joseph was six years old. That's too young. When he's old enough, we will see that he will be out working with the other boys. You see that in verse 2. But meanwhile, till he gets old enough, he's going to have to stay in the camp where Jacob is. What's Jacob doing in the camp? Well, Jacob has already spent decades doing the hard work of shepherding. Now he's got sons to do that. And that leaves 97-year-old Jacob with lots of time with little six-year-old Joseph. And the relative ages of Jacob and Joseph are really more like the ages of a great-grandfather and a great-grandson. That's how big the span is. And they have all this time, just the two of them, in the camp. Now, what's going to happen? We know the natural affinity that's going to be in that relationship. That's what the Bible is telling us. Jacob was not playing favorites. How do we know this? Because when we get to the time when if he was playing favorites, he would really play them, which is on his deathbed when he blesses his sons in chapter 49, when he passes the power of rule, the scepter, it does not go to Joseph. It goes to Judah. It doesn't go to Joseph, the son of Rachel, Jacob's first love. It goes to Judah, the son of Leah. Jacob is not playing favorites. Jacob does the will of God. So coming back to our text, the next thing we see is that Joseph at age 17, which means Jacob now is going to be about 108, he's been out shepherding with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, that would be Dan and Naphtali and Gad and Asher, been out shepherding with them, and he brings a bad report of them to Jacob. Verse 2, we're not told exactly what the details of the report were, just that it was not a favorable report. Now, it's easy for us to see this as another character strike against Joseph. He's a tattletale. 
But we have to remember the bigger picture of what Scripture shows us regarding the character of Joseph on the one hand and the character of his brothers on the other. What is the character of his brothers? What are the little glimpses we get of the character of his brothers? Well, in chapter 35, we find out that Reuben slept with his father's wife, Billah. This is the same situation that we will see Paul condemn in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 when a man has his father's wife. Paul tells that church to excommunicate him immediately. Paul says this is the kind of stuff that even shocks the pagan Gentiles. We also know from chapter 34, as I've already mentioned, that Simeon and Levi used circumcision, the covenant uh, uh, sacrament of union and entrance into the covenant. They use it not for God's purposes, but for their purposes as a rule, and they slaughter all the men of Salem. There was only one man in Salem who was guilty, but they slaughtered them all. So they render every wife a widow and every child fatherless. And then their brothers come and join them in plundering the town. This is one of the indications that it may well be that Joseph had already been sold off to Egypt by the time of the incident at Shechem. Um, You notice that in our text later on, the boys have taken the sheep and they're over around Shechem. It's probably not that likely that they're going to take the sheep in the vicinity of the place where they basically destroyed an entire town. Uh, probably not going to go back over there. Now, we that doesn't tell us for sure, but that's an indication that Joseph may have already been sold off, which is why we have no mention of Joseph in that incident. Furthermore, we're going to learn as we go forward that as soon as the incident with Joseph hits... It really has a bad effect on everybody. And Judah immediately is going to go off to another land. He's going to get married and so forth. And it appears that that perhaps Reuben did the same thing. But that would explain why in the incident uh, with Salem in chapter 34, we hear about Simeon and we hear about Levi, but we don't hear anything about Reuben or Judah who are normally leaders, as we see in our text today. But we don't hear a word about them in chapter 34. Again, these are not things that are telling us for sure exactly when these events occurred. They're just little factors that we need to consider. And so when they pull off this whole ruse with the town of Salem and destroy the town, they're not just deceiving the town folk. They're also deceiving their father Jacob as well. So what about Joseph's character by way of contrast? Well, going forward, what we're going to see is that Joseph is cast down as low as possible in one horrible situation after another. And through it all, Joseph never wavers. He will continue to trust God. He will continue to serve whomever God places over him. And he is going to continue to be recognized and exalted even by pagan unbelievers because they cannot deny his extraordinary work ethic, his trustworthiness, his skill, and his wisdom. They're so clear. 
And so what we're really seeing here in our text in chapter 37 is not this little self-righteous conceited prig. What we're seeing is that these extraordinary qualities that are going to show up in Egypt because God has graciously built them into Joseph, they're already showing up at home. That's what's going on. And so the bottom line is Joseph is the only son Jacob can trust to tell the truth, number one, and to know and do what is right. He's the only one he can trust. And it's in that light that we should view Joseph's bad report of his brothers in verse 2. We don't know what it was, but we know the difference in their character. We know the other boys cannot be trusted. We know Joseph can. And this is also the light in which we should see the special tunic Jacob had made for Joseph in verse 3. Now, it says a tunic of many colors. What we can tell is that it's a special tunic. It has some kind of uh, glory to it. Uh, It doesn't look like the normal tunics, but we don't know if it was of many colors or if it was glorious in some other way. But it's basically in recognition from Jacob that Joseph is already showing these extraordinary character qualities that are going to come out again and again and again as we go forward in the book. Now, what about Joseph's sharing of his dreams? Because that makes it seem like he's just a guy full of himself without any thought for anybody else. Because with his dreams involve his brothers and even his parents coming and bowing down before him. And he can't wait to go and tell everybody. Now, who does that? That's what we're thinking. Who does that? Who? Oh, let me tell you about my dream where you bow down to me. Let me tell you about another dream. Same thing. You bow down to me. Let me tell you that. And so that strikes us as odd uh, at best. But the thing is this, we've got to compare this once again with Scripture. Because the time is in fact going to come when his brothers do bow down to him, when they don't recognize him. It's going to be when Joseph is the vice regent of all Egypt. And all of Egypt is under him except for Pharaoh himself. Pharaoh trusts him with complete power, complete decision makings. His brothers show up to get food because there is a famine. Joseph recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. And so he has absolute power over his brothers. He doesn't have to care at all what they think or what anybody else thinks. And in fact, Joseph has the same power over the Egyptians and the same power over every nation that's in the region because they're all in the famine and they're all coming to Egypt to buy food. They're either, you either go and bow down to Joseph or you starve. For the whole region, that's what's going to happen. And so he has plenty of reason to get his brothers back, to pay them back for what they did, but he doesn't. He seeks their good. He continues to trust in God. Even after their father dies, Jacob continues to show kindness toward them. Chapter 45 and verse 5. Jacob 
when when he reveals himself, I mean, Joseph, when he reveals himself to his brothers, and of course, they're very distraught. They see he's the ruler in Egypt. They're just going, we're dead men. We're dead men. That's it. But he says, do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. In chapter 50, after Jacob dies and his brothers are going, our father is dead now. We're really dead men now. Joseph is going to kill us. Now we're going to get the hammer. And they come and fall down on their faces before Joseph and say, we are your servants. They're just trying to preserve their lives. And Joseph says, do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to save many people. Do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. That's what we have with these dreams. So Joseph and his stories, his story, his life story, are pictures of Christ and the gospel. And his dreams are announcements of that gospel story ahead of time. And just as we see Jesus in the New Testament sharing his life story, which is the gospel story, the real gospel story, and how does that story end? Well, he's going to be exalted to God's right hand that every knee should bow And every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2, 9 through 11. And so Jesus is announcing this. Is he keeping it to himself? Or is he going to share the gospel announcement that all peoples are going to bow down to him and confess him as Lord? Think about all the different ways that Jesus announces that story concerning himself. Think about the name that Jesus used for himself. A lot of people called him all kinds of good, different things, good and bad. But the, the, the phrase he always called himself was the son of man. He always referred to himself as the son of man. That's a quote from Daniel chapter 7 where Daniel in a vision sees the son of man ascend into heaven, come before the ancient of days and receive dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Daniel seven thirteen and 14. Every time Jesus called himself the son of man, he was saying, I am the one who Daniel saw. I am the one who will be exalted before the ancient of days and receive dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples and nations should serve me. So that message by Jesus was greatly offensive to many of his brethren and certainly to the religious leaders of the day, just as Joseph's message concerning his dreams was very offensive to his brothers. And so they envied him, verse 11, just as the religious leaders envied Jesus, Matthew 27, verse 18. And the result was the same both times. His brothers sought to kill Joseph and the religious leaders sought to kill Jesus. You see, it's Pilate in Matthew 27, 18 who knows that it's because of envy that the religious leaders have delivered up Jesus for crucifixion. 
Now, you may wonder, well, what kind of a reliable witness of that? You've got Pilate, the pagan politician of the ancient world. Why should we take his word? Well, when Pilate, when we have this little tidbit here that Pilate knew it was because of envy that they delivered him up, God is putting an expert witness on the witness stand. That's what he's doing there. Because you see, Pilate may not have been an expert in many things, but he was a politician in the ancient world. And he understand that envy, envy, resentment, hatred, ill will, backbiting, backstabbing, all of that, he knew that's what makes fallen politics go round. And he knew envy when he saw it. He was an expert. And so we're told it was because of envy. Now let me ask you, if envy played that kind of central role in the wickedest act of human history, what kind of role does it play in all the other wicked acts that happen in this world? Just as with Joseph's brothers when they sought to kill him. It says in James 3.16, where envy and self-seeking exists, confusion, chaos, and every evil thing are there. And so Joseph's brothers hated Joseph's dreams. But the fact is, those dreams are going to save their lives. Those dreams are good news dreams. Those dreams are gospel dreams. And so... They may have hated Joseph for those dreams, but those were not private dreams for Joseph. The gospel is not private. The gospel is public truth. And so those dreams were intended to be shared. And so as we come to our conclusion today, we see already the seeds being planted. We see that Joseph's brothers are headed the wrong direction. We see the need for the gospel by looking at Joseph's brothers. The need for the gospel. And in in Joseph, the Christ type, we see, we know he's a sinner. We know he falls short. He's not the Lord Jesus Christ. At the same time, God sovereignly, by his grace, has built extraordinary faith and character into this young man already. And it's already showing up. You know, when you look through Scripture, there's a lot of different Christ types that God raised up at different times, and some of them are very vivid pictures. You can think of David, the man after God's own heart, the shepherd king, a very vivid picture of Christ. But with most all of the Christ types, there is some obvious moment, some obvious sin, some obvious failing that makes it crystal clear that while they are the Christ type, they are not the Christ. They're not the one. David, it's adultery with Bathsheba and then the murder of her husband and the murder of other men to cover up the murder and the adultery. It's obvious. Even with Moses, when he loses his temper, God tells him to speak to the rock. He strikes the rock second time. That pictures the crucifixion of Christ when the water comes out. Christ isn't crucified twice. He's crucified once. And so God says, you don't go into the promised land. 
as great as Moses was. With most all of them, you have some obvious point in failing like that. There are two exceptions in the Bible. Joseph and Daniel. Now, we know they fell short. They're not the Lord Jesus Christ. But there is no recording of any obvious sin or failing or disobedience in their lives. And so those two men stand out in an extraordinary way the degree to which they trusted in God and were faithful. And in that, we we get great vivid pictures of the Lord Jesus Christ and we get great inspirations for ourselves of how to walk in the Christian life because it's been done to this degree before. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.